Uninvisible is a support podcast that deals squarely with medical issues that present unique advocacy issues for individuals. We do not provide medical advice. Please consult with your physician for any medical issue that you are facing. Information and comments that you send to us are governed by our terms of service and privacy policy, which are available on our website located at uninvisiblepod.com. The opinions expressed by guests are their own and are not necessarily the opinion of Uninvisible or the show sponsors. Any advertising that you may hear is accepted without regard to our editorial content. Welcome to Uninvisible. I'm your host, Lauren Friedman, and I'm here with my guests to bring you info, insights, and inspiration for coping with, diagnosing, and treating invisible illness. We're here oversharing, so you don't have to struggle with invisibility anymore. Okay, guys, I've cooked up something amazing with my friend Natalie Y. Beavers, founder of Angels of Epilepsy, and it's all yours for free now. Go to my website at uninvisiblepod.com and download your free ebook called Hacking Healthcare, a resource guide Natalie and I have compiled using not only our experiences in the healthcare system, but also with the assistance of other patient leaders who have added their two cents. From a message of empowerment to notes on navigating health insurance and your doctor's visit, this is an invaluable guide intended to make healthcare more approachable and to give you the tools you need to succeed. This resource has been incredibly eye-opening and important to us, and we hope that with it, you will see real results and improve your experience in the system. Once more, that's a free download of Hacking Healthcare at uninvisiblepod.com. Go check it out, guys. Thank you. All right, guys, thank you so much for joining us. I am here today with the lovely Mimi Butlin. You may know her as Can't Go Out, I'm Sick on Instagram and across social media platforms. She's an artist. She's also living with chronic invisible illness, and she's going to talk to us about it. So Mimi, thank you so much for joining us. Hi. No, it's fine. I'm very happy to be talking to you, Lauren. Yeah, it's really great. So we connected online, as I have with so many of my guests. Um, And I reached out to you specifically because so much of your work is really tying in what's political about living in a chronically ill body um, and really capturing this moment we're in, I feel. Um, And you've been having great response for it, haven't you? Yeah, no, I have. I, I find I didn't really mean it to be political. Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? But I feel like it just naturally kind of turns into that because I feel like everything is political and this definitely is. Yeah, um, absolutely. Well, and when you live in a body that's that the world isn't designed for, I suppose, and particularly, you know, depending on how you identify as well, um, and you've you've really honed in on that with your work because of the people who obviously interest you, but it's it's, I think it's fair to say it's making a point and, and certainly the Spoonie community is, is responding. So it's very exciting to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. Yeah. So let's talk about you. Um, when and how did you first realize you were sick and what are you, what are we working with here? What have you been diagnosed with up to this point? Um, so I have Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, fibromyalgia and, um, POT syndrome. And then I, I have been diagnosed with ME and like, yeah, but I do. I kind of feel like I like I I wouldn't necessarily say that I I have any really that much anymore. I feel like I definitely did at one point, but I do feel like that has gradually um, subsided a bit. Subsided a bit, yeah. Like I would say that a lot. I'm a lot less fatigued and a lot less tired. Obviously, I mean, has so many symptoms, but 
than I am in pain. Do you know what I mean? Like pain right. is definitely the thing that is my biggest like symptom, if you know what I mean. Like right. that's the thing that controls me. Right. Like, yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting that the fatigue has subsided. Whenever I hear people who have been diagnosed with ME, which seems to be, it seems that doctors in the UK are a little more open to giving that diagnosis in the first place. But it also seems on the flip side that, you know, there are people like you who are in remission from ME, if you will. And it makes me wonder if the diagnosis was even correct in the first place, because Mm. you know, maybe it was fatigue related to everything else and we don't even know what ME is yet. Like it's also nebulous, isn't it? Yeah, I do feel like loads of these diagnoses cisses, yeah. are kind of because they, like especially with ME, like when I was first sick, they didn't know why I was getting better. Mm. And I'll talk a bit about that in a minute, but yeah, they didn't know why I was getting better. And then, so they were just like, well, you must have ME. Do you know what I mean? Mm. That was kind of just like... Became well, a catch-all. And that's like all really we're gonna say and like bye <laughs> yeah well and because I, from what I understand in the UK there's not really much of a treatment offered for ME either yeah no I mean when I got diagnosed with ME and I was in a really bad like place at that point like I mean and it was so new to me mm. like get, being that sick for such a long time and when you I remember the doctor saying I think you've got ME um you'll have it like forever um yeah and I was just like <laughs> bye like, so you're going to have to get used to it. He said, you, you, there's nothing we can really do. So you're going to have to get used to it. And I remember just being like, yeah. oh, I, I, I was just the heartbreak that you feel when you get told like something like that, you know, that you're going to have this forever and there's mm. nothing we can do. And you're just like, how is this even like a thing? Yeah. How I is this possible? Of anyone getting something like this before, like no one that I know or no one that my family knew had ever. I mean, actually it turns out now that people have kind of, because of me and because like my parents have spoken about me and stuff, like, like my mom posted things on social media and it turns out that actually a few people do kind of have these things. But at the time, like we didn't know that, like it was just kind of no, like there was just nothing. And that you're left to your own devices as well. I mean, yeah, to be sitting in front of the doctor for possibly the first time in your life being told that they can't help you has got to feel extremely frustrating. Yeah. It's, it's a horrible feeling. I remember just like, uh, cause I, I, should I, should I talk to you a bit about when I first got unwell and then... Yeah, tell us. So I was at uni. Actually, mm. I'd always kind of been like a, quite sensitive to things and I was like a bit of a sickly, like young person, but I, I'd never got really, really unwell. Like, I had a few weird things. I would always get these hive type rashes and like I was, I get motion sickness, but just not, not like normal motion sickness. Like, I would literally be in a car for about a minute and I'd be throwing up. Like mm. I was just kind of quite a fragile person, I think. Yeah. Um, but anyways, I was at uni and I was waking up and I, I couldn't see and my vision was so blurred and I was having awful migraines and like, I, I just couldn't, I, I couldn't function like at all. Mm. And I, I remember just being so confused and everything was blurry and I was going to like the doctors where I was at uni, but no one could really tell me what was going on. Mm. Um, and then it, I got really bad and um, I was in a hospital and stuff and they realized I had viral meningitis. Mm. Um, and, but then I, I was healing, so they sort of like, okay, we are fine, like, bye. Oh, right, um, again. Yeah. But I, 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 when I was a bit better, I wasn't in such severe pain, like as in screaming, you know, screaming kind of pain mm-hmm. um, and like throwing up and stuff. But I, I still wasn't like, okay. Mm-hmm. And then I just didn't really get better from that point. I was just still ill, but not kind of, and still in a lot of pain, but most of the time it wasn't absolutely agonizing, where, to the point of like, being in hospital it would go in and out of stages but it would, would didn't improve 
So it sounds uh, like you already had a predisposition and, and then the meningitis could have been a trigger for a lot of these illnesses. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. Because I did actually get a bit better at one point. Um, after about a year and a half, I started to kind of be able to function a bit normally. Um, I was still in pain, but it, was, it, was, it wasn't really that extreme. And I basically thought, okay, I have to manage this, but mm-hmm. I can live quite normally. Like I was studying again and I felt like I was like, becoming part of the world again and then I got um Epstein-Barr virus and gastroenteritis like a couple of times and then I just that was about five years ago and I haven't had like a single kind of um you know like better stage since then Mm. well it's as if your immune system were compromised and of course you were already more susceptible to these illnesses and I mean it's interesting because I hear so many stories about people's onset being at uni and I I wonder whether, and I, you know, I've said this in a few interviews, but I wonder whether that culture of overworking and, and crashing and, and, you know, um, pulling all nighters and stuff, it's so encouraged at uni. And it it seems as if when we're in our late teens, early twenties, we think that we're invincible and we can study all night at the same time, you know, and that so many of these illnesses have their beginnings in this kind of environment, it doesn't surprise me entirely. You know, it makes me think is that the culture that's getting in the way, I mean, aside from the fact that you had these viral infections, you know, uh, the culture probably wasn't supporting your health either. Completely. I think, and that's a part of it, why I blame myself so much to start with when I wasn't getting better Mm. because I was like, it was completely my fault that I got myself to that point where I was so unwell. Do you know what I mean? Like I was going out all the time. Like I wasn't eating well. Like I just thought, that I could do whatever everyone else is doing, and everyone else was fine. So, like, why, why, like, wasn't I fine? Right. Um, but it's interesting it's- that you say you blame yourself because I always, you know, this immediately becomes political because I, I say, if you were a guy, if you identified in a different way, would you even be beating yourself up in the same way? You know what I mean? Would yeah. the system be rigged in your favor? Yeah. No, you're right. Mm. Um, yeah. So, yeah. So when, how old were you when you actually got the EDS and fibro and POTS diagnoses? Was it long yeah. after this? The fibromyalgia diagnosis came about a year and a half after, mm-hmm. or maybe like a year. And then the EDS came like a bit later. And the POTS came, actually the POTS might have come first and then it was fibromyalgia and then it was EDS. Um, yeah. And these are all comorbid conditions. So it makes sense that you have them all. Yeah. I feel like, yeah, you don't ever have one. It's like, well, yeah, <laughs> especially with EDS because so many of its additional symptoms and because there are so many different types and everything, but it's it's linked to so many other conditions, um, particularly with regard to chronic pain and, you know, mm. um, but that it sounds like you weren't really offered a ton of support after these diagnoses. Um, no, I really wasn't. And the thing is as well is that like my family have like quite wealthy and mm. they could have got me treatments like and then I saw like the best people or like, do you know what I mean? Like, I had the resources to kind of like get the help if it was out there, but mm-hmm. then it just wasn't there. Like, and so I was thinking, I always think about like, what if I didn't have that either? Like right. I'd probably, I'd probably be more thinking about like, there must be that help out. Cause I used to always think like, we just can't find that person. Like there has to be someone who can fix me. Like we just haven't found them yet. Mm. But, I think that feeling of like, there must be someone out there who can help me, but like, I can't find them must be like 10 times worse. It's actually 
the money is the reason why you almost can't find them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it sounds like you were, obviously you live in the UK, you have access to the NHS, um, but you were able to also access private practice doctors, you know, because of help from your family throughout all of this. Yeah. And, and I mean, you know, this is where it's like, we have to appreciate that, that level of transparency as well, because I, I think so many of us really do realize that like, what we have access to when we're that desperate isn't what's available to everyone else. Yeah. And even like we have the NHS anyways. And like, Mm. I mean, I think about people who don't have something like that. And then like, I, I'm like the the one level of privilege, which is like so privileged to be able to have the NHS and to get access to private doctors. And then there's a privilege of just having the NHS. And then you think about people who are in countries where they're living with chronic illnesses and they don't have like access to anything. Oh, you mean like the US? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, because I think we're the only one left that isn't, uh, you know, hasn't figured out how to get healthcare to everyone as a basic human, right? Yeah, no, I, I just agree. Yeah, it's unbelievable. So what steps have you taken? I mean, you've gotten these diagnoses. You haven't been given a ton of support. How have you been able to manage your health up until this point? Um. I think I've just tried so many things, but I think I'm getting to the point now where I've tried acupuncture, I've tried physio, I've tried so many different types of diets. I've tried like a lot of like holistic approaches as well. And like, uh, kind of neuropathic sort of stuff as well. And just like, just pretty much anything that I could like find, like I've probably tried it. Something, some of the stuff that like before I got sick, I would have thought, Oh my God, this is ridiculous. But when you're so desperate, you will literally try it like anything you can, you can. So true. Um, but nothing has really helped me. Like mm. I feel, and I'm sort of at the point in the moment where like, because there's been so much trauma attached to going to these doctor's appointments and dealing with certain doctors and stuff. Like I sort of feel like I don't even want to do it anymore. Like, yeah, like I, they're not helping me. Like mm. no one, no one's helping. I feel like I can see all these people. And sometimes I'm just like, well, what is even the point? Because no one's really doing anything that's drastically improving my way of life. Do you know what I mean? Mm, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I imagine of the, of the illnesses that you're dealing with, the POTS is perhaps the most easily managed, but even yeah. then, you know, the fact that like with something like EDS, there isn't a standard of care yet that's, that's available for patients, you know? So like how are doctors supposed to be able to administer care when there is no standard of care, when diagnosis hasn't been standardized yet, which obviously is what a number of organizations are trying to create is more of a standardization, but um, you know, that obviously you've tried these holistic methods and the, the trauma that is continually compounded when you're not seeing relief from these treatments, that's got to ultimately be worse than trying to find that, you know, trying to grab the brass ring somewhere and, and just missing continually. I mean, I can't, Yeah, I, it's hard. It's hard for anyone who hasn't lived with chronic illness to really understand that frustration and to really understand. Like the, the cause I think you go and see these doctors and, you are the most vulnerable that you can ever be. And I think they have the ability to say, like, what they say matters more than they could ever imagine. Do you know what I mean? Like, if they don't treat you right, or if they don't, if they say stuff to you that... Something a bit flippant, maybe, that they don't really think about. You're completely at their will. Like, I could leave, if if a doctor even treats me with, like, human care, like, you know, just being Mm. kind and actually just trying to understand, then I'll leave that appointment and I'll feel so much better about, like, about things. And then if a doctor doesn't do that, you just feel like, 
I just don't want to be here. Like, I just can't do this anymore. Like, they have so much power. And I mm. think they just don't really understand the power that they have. And and some do, as you say, like the ones who, who really have compassion, you know, yeah. they, they, yeah. they certainly are better serving their patients, but it doesn't make a difference when there isn't a standard of care for a disease like with EDS, you know. Yeah. Um, I also I, feel like there's this thing that doctors, that you can, like I, I know a few doctors, like just in terms of like family, friends or friends, and like they seem to not really get the effects that like, Mm. some doctors do to their patients and I feel like there's this whole thing it's like oh not all doctors it's like yeah but it's not all doctors but it's still like a high number of doctors who are treating their patients like shit do you know what I mean yeah I feel like it's actually a bit similar to the not all men scenario it's like oh we're just like pushing the blame and just kind of like yeah yeah I think that's a very well-made point um I I mean especially being a woman in a system that isn't working for you it's you're already at a disadvantage aren't you you know we're already living in worlds that aren't designed for our bodies and then you have to deal with being dysfunctional in those worlds and you know um as you say that power dynamic i I mean it it really it's a reflection of what the me too movement is you know Mm. as well as uh so much of what chronic illness patients go through and, and how we struggle to survive and to explain what's going on to people who just have absolutely no concept of it whatsoever. And it's so hard for us to explain anyway, because when you go to the, like when you're dealing with so much symptoms that are affecting your like processing of information, then mm. it's so hard to get, really get the words that just aren't the words to sort of, yeah. Say, but yeah. uh, but uh, I mean I also wonder do the words even exist to properly describe? Yeah, that's them? what I mean. There, there actually aren't like there aren't the words yeah. in, in that in the English language. Yeah. Um, but I think when like for me when I went to go and see the doctors to start with, like in my head at that point, like I thought the doctors could cure everything. Like yeah. I, I've never been in a situation where like, I was like where a doctor couldn't really do anything. Um, and I feel like when they start to tell you at that point that it's in your head or like that, you know, there's nothing really wrong with you. I think you then start to believe that as well, because you think mm. that they're like, if they're saying this, then it must be true. And then you realize actually that no, it's not true, but yeah. That psychological journey is, it's a familiar story and all too familiar. Um, and, you know, adds to the additional frustration, um, you know, that, that struggle to be believed that, that, you know, um, that we don't have the language to express it, but even then there are so many people who just aren't receptive to that either. Yeah. Yeah. The, the mental health journey that you go on when you're unwell is like a whole kind of, it's an, it's a whole separate diagnosis. Yeah. And also it's so hard to be able to be taken seriously for both. Do you know what I mean? And like mm. not try and have them blamed on each other. And just right. kind of like obviously they're separate to a certain extent because obviously the way that um, obviously they impact each other, right? Not that separate, but they kind of need to be treated separately so that you don't sort of feel like you're, you know. Um, well, that's when the self doubt begins, doesn't it? When you go like, "Is everything I'm feeling real? Like, if I can't properly explain it, is it real? If a doctor doesn't believe me, is it real?" And you know, am I actually a crazy person? And do I need mental health treatment because I'm losing my mind? 
but equally you're losing your mind because I did lose my mind. Like I definitely lost my mind after the second time I was after I got sick again when I felt like I got my life back, and then I was sick again. Like I really, really lost my mind. Like I was so, um, I was so suicidal, and I Mm. was in psychiatric hospitals, and Mm. just kind of, I, I just. I just didn't want I couldn't see myself living this way and I just I had a taste of what it was like this life of being sick and I was just like I can't go back I can't do this again and um like I actually did find that that was something that I did actually get help with but again like I saw a private psychiatrist in my in my um for my mental like for my mental health and actually that I think that that actually did help me quite a lot and that's something that I I'm a lot better with now. Like my mental health has definitely improved. Um, has art also been an outlet for you in that sense? Um, well, actually I ha- I've had such a weird thing about because I used to do art school and it was like the thing I loved. And then I was so sure I wanted to like pursue it. And I went to do my art foundation before I went to uni. Um, I wasn't planning on going to uni, like I was going to an art school. And then after my art foundation, I just felt like, oh my God, I don't know if I want to do this anymore. Like, I don't feel like they understand, like, they know, they understand what I want to do. Like, I feel like they're pushing me out of my comfort zone too much. And I really didn't like this whole feeling like I wasn't, because I think you go at school, you're like, oh, if you're an artist at school, you're kind of probably one of the best artists if you want to do art. Do you know what I mean? And then you go to art school and you're like, oh my God. Like, the pool I, is suddenly so much bigger. <laughs> yeah, so much bigger. And you're just, and I, I've never been like very self-confident. And, I, and so straight away I was like, oh, I don't want to do this anymore. So I went to uni and did history of art instead. And I, and, and I just stopped doing art completely, like stopped physically doing art. Um, and I'd always have like, such weird dreams about art. It was so weird. Like when I was unwell, like I don't know if it was actually to do with art. I think it was more about failing, but I would have dreams that I was back at school again. And like, I like was failing my art, like my art A-levels. It was so weird. Um, yeah, I don't even know what was that question. I still have dreams about walking on stage and not knowing my lines, if it makes you feel any better. So <laughs> weird, weird school dreams. Like, I don't know yeah. why. Yeah, it's all anxiety, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely is. I feel like school was like my happiest time as well. And I feel mm. like I almost like everything's been so rocky and like quite shit since school that like in my dreams, they're back at school, but at, they're shit at school. Do you know what I mean? Like there'll be something really awful happening, like in my safe space, if you know what I mean. In my- Isn't that interesting though? Cause like, that's something that's also happened because you've gotten chronically ill because your life has changed so drastically that this happy time is being, you know, sort of tampered with in your dreams too. Yeah. Yeah. And like the nightmares that I've had since I've been sick as well, it's just all the time, like every night, mm. like, like crying in my sleep or like waking up just like drenched in sweat and like, I used to think it was one of those medications I, that I took at like, this one point. I thought that was a side effect of that, but I didn't take that medication. I haven't now for ages. Um, but I think it's just something that a lot of us get is these like, night terrors. Um, yeah. Yeah. Because the anxiety is just, it's palpable all the time. And you know, you're living with that anxiety at such a high level every hour of the day, you know, no wonder. It, I mean, it, it's a, it's medical PTSD at that point too, but it, it's, it's also, you know, understanding what trauma does to our body and that like, it's going to be even more difficult for us to grasp wellness or any semblance of it when mentally we're fighting a battle every day. Yeah. Mm. I remember when I got diagnosed with medical, like with PTSD, like due to Mm. all the stuff I've been through medic- medical wise <laughs> and um and I remember just thinking like 
this actually makes so much sense. But I think at the time, you don't feel like you're like deserving of having PTSD. Do you know what I mean? I think that's something you feel like like has happened after something really tra- like really tragic and traumatic. And you kind of don't associate your illness with that, even though it was and your whole life has Absolutely. been but just Well, like, I haven't been in a car accident. I haven't had, you know, violence done to my body, but actually you have because you've been poked and probed by every doctor out there who's told yeah. you they can't help you. You know, like it is trauma. It's just not trauma as we're taught to understand it. Yeah, yeah, completely. So when did you like turn back to art? Like, cause I mean, obviously that's become, it's very much the platform that you're using to communicate now. And it seems like you've ended up channeling a lot of what you've been through into your art, but also supporting other people in the chronic illness community in doing so. Um, well, it was about this time last year. Um, and I just started like, actually, I did draw a teeny bit when I was in that psychiatric hospital, but then I stopped as soon as I got out. I don't know. It was just something I did at the time. And then um, I don't know what sparked it this time last year. Like, I can't, I don't know why I was suddenly like, oh, actually, I'm going to start drawing again. But, um, but I just did. And then I then started, I thought, I already had, like, an account that I'd made, but I'd posted, like, two images on it. And, like, one was just a picture of me, and then another one was, I can't remember, something else. And then I just didn't go back to it. It was like, I don't know, I'd done it like a year, like a, a year ago or something. It was like, I'll do this and then stopped. <laughs> um, yeah, that's pretty typical with social media anyway. <laughs> yeah. I was so scared of like, I remember one time, like before I started the, um, the account anyways, I remember being like, oh, I'm going to like have a look at some of the hashtags, like of like chronic illness things. And then I remember just being absolutely like, oh my God, like, People were saying what I was feeling, but it didn't make it didn't comfort me. It was making me feel like, oh my god, there are people out here like me, and no one's doing anything. And oh my god, it's too much. Like I'm going to shut this phone off. I like, can't look at this stuff. So it actually gave you more anxiety rather than so helping you find more, community. So much more. Um, I think that's typical too. I mean, it's interesting because a lot of people talk about turning to social media to find community, but I don't think that works for everyone. And in doing that, you also have to be able to filter out the stuff that isn't helpful to you, which takes practice. Yeah. And I, and so then when I but for some reason when I started drawing on it like the people who I was seeing then or so someone would maybe like like, like something or like comment on something and then I'd start following them and then the stuff that I was seeing the more that I actually then established like friends on social media and stuff the more that it was no longer this place that was actually quite scary it just became like so comforting um, but just to start with right. it yeah and you found your community in that but again it like took a minute too but it sounds like it was good that you sat in it a little bit and figured it out I think that's quite important because even just see like if you go straight in like to that to just like looking at that stuff all the time I mean now I'm pretty much looking at it the whole time like all this like the whole this whole community's you know experiences but then like even just knowing that there was people out there was enough to make me have to sit with that for a while do you know what I mean and just kind of like it was like such a stages of kind of actually using the account it was like okay Mm. there are people out there okay, like, I'm going to do a drawing, but, like, I'm not really going to look at, like, what anyone else is kind of... I'll start posting yeah. things, but, like, I'm not actually expecting anyone to see them or I'm not going to look at anyone else's stuff. Let's I'm just, just see of, what happens kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Mm. But then I did a drawing of Lena Dunham, and, um, and that's when, like, I actually, I think, got some followers or, like, people sort of knew that I existed, if you know what I mean. Just, like, yeah. not local people, but just a few people. And for those who don't know, Lena Dunham, she's had a full hysterectomy now. She was living with endometriosis and has been very open about that as well. And so, you know, you doing a drawing of her is yeah. very much 
looking to someone who set an example in pop culture and responding as as a fan, but also as someone who gets it on a certain yeah. level. Well, celebrities were like the only people that I would, that these celebrities that I then started to draw were the only people that I'd ever seen with some of the illnesses that were some, or like maybe they weren't the same illness, but they had similar symptoms. And um, I remember like, Oh no, I remember when I'd see stuff like that, that, that like <laughs> I would see stuff that would be, be occasionally in magazines or something like, I mean, so occasionally, and I would just cling to it so much. I'd be like, Oh my God, there's someone out there who's like, who exists like me. And like, they were kind of my, now I, now I obviously have friends online and stuff, but back then they were kind of the friends that like, who were sharing similar experiences to me. Like they weren't my friends or anything, but it was just someone else who I could felt like I could relate to. I think that's so important. Like, and the celebrities who are open about it too. It's like, it's not, yeah. And I think it's so important that they are, obviously it's up to them, but I'm so thankful that there are some celebrities who do speak about these things because I think the people who aren't ready to go on social media and maybe be part of this community or just kind of, I mean, they're already part of it anyways, but who aren't ready to kind of, um, to embrace the community and all of the, all of the stuff that comes with being on social media. Or, or even able to be on social media. Um, I think that it's so vital that these celebrities do do speak out because, like, oh my god, it helped me so much. Yeah, and I mean, we're, there's also people who become celebrities because they're speaking out about this stuff. I mean, yeah. we were talking about Laura Parker just before we started the interview because she's a great example of someone who has gained notoriety because she talks very openly about what she's going through as well. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously you, you found these celebrities who were, were helpful to you in your self-perception and in understanding the larger implications of your illness. But did you find that you also needed like a personal advocate at any point to like getting your diagnosis, going through this, you know, figuring out how to discover treatments and, and live appropriately? You know, is that something that you ever found for yourself or were you always your own advocate? Um, I think my mum was to start with that she would come to everything with me um, and she would always say to me like you know I won't stop to like we you know find someone to help you sort of thing but then that like she, I think after like the first year I think she was really expecting us to me to be better and then I didn't get better and then our relationship completely fell apart and like I mean, we're, we're okay now. That's, that's very interesting. I, I think it's really important for people to understand that, that like sometimes the expectations of others who are trying to help us, sometimes our bodies aren't going to catch up to what they're hoping and that can really affect yeah. the relationship. And it's not any ill will on either side. It's just that we're still trying to figure it out too. And I think she just found me as well. Like obviously I was living at home and she just found me so hard to be around. And like, obviously I was hard to be around. Like, I was fucking like my life like in my eyes because I was completely over. Like I was suffering yeah. so much, but I think she just kind of, I think she just, my mom was also, she has, she's quite um, unemotional and kind of like. She, she must be British. <laughs> she's so different to me though. Like she's yeah. was so different in that way. Cause she just, she really lacks like having empathy mm. and she really struggles with that. And I think she just really gave up on me. And mm. it was so hard for like a lot, long time for me and my mom. Like we, we're, we're fine now. And like, we're really building like a good relationship now. But for yeah. about five years, we were just like, 
Wow. We, was, we were not in a good place. And that's a long time, five years, to be without that advocate yeah. and to have I to mean, sort of find yourself <laughs> again. Yeah. We, but like we to, to, to sort of... Okay, but there was so much kind of... I mean, once your mum basically abandons you, the one person that you think like will be there for you no matter what, like that, you don't just get over that. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. It affected us. Like, I mean, it still does affect me now, but I mean, it's still even just thinking about it does actually make me feel quite upset that that even happened. Yeah. Uh, But But it's also completely normal and natural that there will be limits to others' understanding of our situation. But it can be really hard to be left behind. Yeah, especially when you kind of think that, like, I don't know, I'd always thought that no matter what, like, like, she would always be there. Or like, you know, when you feel that, yeah, we feel that way about our moms when we have a decent relationship yeah. to start with. Yeah. That there can be anything that can kind of, and if you really needed that person, they'd be there. So I think that was like really difficult for me. But I mean, mm. everything's fine now. Um, and then I think since then, I've just kind of been my own my own advocate. And then my dad maybe a bit as well. My boyfriend maybe a bit too. Like if I felt mm. like I really, if I was in a place where I felt like I couldn't voice anything about how what things were like for me. Do you, do you also see the irony of like, as a woman turning to men like your dad or your boyfriend for help in voicing what you need to voice? Well, I also feel like, yeah, I know completely there's so much irony. I feel like the only times I really felt like I've been taken seriously is the times when I've gone with my dad. Like Mm. they're the times when I feel like safe in a doctor's appointment or like they're actually listening to me. Isn't that amazing? I feel like I recommend taking a cis man with you to like any appointment if you want to be taken seriously. Because yeah. that is the only way I've ever felt like I've been taken seriously. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, it's fascinating to me, the biases that exist, you know, just among us as individuals, but also, you know, within the medical system and between patients and doctors that, you know, a cis white man is going to have the best luck, not only because of the research that's behind the conditions that he might have, but yeah, also, I, you know, because... His word, his word is truer than our words. Yes, yeah, and the way in which culturally we're structured to believe men before we believe yeah. women. And I think there's just always that crazy woman thing, you know, like uh-huh. the terrible woman, like the mad woman who, yep. you know, it just kind of just mad because she's just hormonal and like you know just a woman basically like yeah and I think they just think as soon as you start to show any of those signs of just being a bit like hysterical I mean I'm hysterical like but but you were hysterical for a reason it's not like you were hysterical for none yeah yeah there's valid reasons why we are hysterical I don't think there's there's ever any not reason why a woman's being hysterical like there's a valid reason for it but I think they just see that and then they're they're just like oh god no she's just like we can't listen to her like what she's saying like she doesn't know what she's saying herself. Like she's not. And um, I suppose that's that's where the voices of those celebrities that you were able to look to as well, who were saying, I'm not hysterical. Like this is something that's actually going on. They carry that much more weight when you're a patient struggling with not being believed that there is validation even among strangers, but ones who are also being taken seriously because of the celebrity culture. I think they they make they validate you so much that like you're like yeah. oh I'm actually not like I like, I'm yeah I, I'm okay I'm, yeah. yeah I haven't <laughs> lost it yeah 
Okay, guys, I want to talk about coaching. I recently connected with an awesome executive and life coach, and her name is Jenna Chieko, a graduate of Dr. Martha Beck's program with a background in psychology and law. She's a former tech general counsel and chief of staff who also worked for the Obama administration. Jenna inspires clients to step into their best lives by helping them access their inner strengths, clear the cobwebs holding them back, and cultivate a dream big growth mindset. She is also a life Sherpa for navigating change. You know who I know who has big dreams and is navigating massive changes now more than ever with coronavirus? We Spoonies. Jenna works virtually and she's offering 10% off to new clients who enroll and mention code INVISIBLE. Her rates are reasonable and she's dedicated to help us rise to the top. Go to jennachieco.com, that's G-E-N-A-C-H-I-E-C-O.com for more. So I'm wondering, you know, as you've come through the diagnoses, tried lots of holistic methods for treatment, you know, you're still sort of finding ways to manage day to day because there's no definitive treatment for anything that you're dealing with. What does a typical day look like for you at this point? And, And how are you balancing work and life as you're managing your symptoms day to day? Um. I'd love, I'd love to be like, oh, you know, I get up and like <laughs> have my like breast juice and like, you know what I mean? <laughs> I go for like a small walk. I'm like, no, that's just not how it is. It's just not realistic in a lot of cases. Yeah. I wake up and then I straight away, I'm like coffee. And I literally just like scream coffee at my boyfriend. And he's just like <laughs> ogre of just like needing coffee in the morning. I literally have, I drink like a gallon of coffee before I even like, wow. like the day. I mean, yeah. I shouldn't even really drink coffee, but you know, whatever. Well, it's like we're constantly told we shouldn't be drinking this or eating that, but it's like obviously it's something that works for you and something that gives you joy. So exactly, exactly, and I like don't even care. I have given up so much for different diets and stuff, but it's just mm. like it doesn't really make a difference. It helps my head actually. Like when I wake up, because I have such bad migraines and headaches all the time, the coffee in the morning has actually helped my headache. Do you know what I mean? As soon as mm. I wake up, the initial headache, like I need coffee to get that first headache back yeah. out of the way. Um, is it like, and I want everyone to understand that, like, as they're listening to this, it's like, you have coffee to get the first headache out of the way. It's not like just to like, get your day started. It's to like, no, no, no. Yeah. <laughs> there are layers that need to be peeled back here, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, um, God, honestly, my day is just so dull. Like it's just <laughs> it's very like the same. It's very like, I'm just here the whole time on my sofa. Like, mm. um, going to appointments occasionally at the moment I haven't really been been going to that many appointments at the moment like I feel like I'm having like a bit of a break from um being too uh I don't know I feel like I'm like dealing with actually getting the confidence to go back into dealing with doctors you're gathering yourself yeah I am I completely am I'm like I just I need some time I think just to kind of be like and I, because I haven't really even been noticing that much of a difference of when I'm not doing treatments. Do you know what I mean? When I'm not mm. trying to search for the next thing, like I'm just. Existing. And it's kind of, it's a mental health thing too, to, to stand yeah. back, gain some perspective, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, and then I'll do some drawing. Um, and are you working full time as an artist now? Um, well, it's the first kind of, it's only really, really been recent. When I think like I wasn't even drawing like this time last year mm. and like, now I am doing like a little bit of like work stuff and I'm like I still a bit like it's so weird when I sort of think to myself like I still don't feel like I can call myself like an illustrator even though I actually have just done like a really big paid paid job Mm. and like I'm like but I I kind of feel like that job I've just done kind of makes me an illustrator but 
I generally still don't see myself like like that. I still don't. And here's the thing: like that's um, it's amazing to me because it's like we're already struggling with our identities in this world in terms of like who I am, what my name means, what my career is. But on top of that, you're also dealing with, am I a sickly person? Do I have this illness? Can I treat this pain today? You know, like the, what you have to struggle through to even gain self-validation. It's, it's more and more layers that you have to work through when you're living with chronic illness. Completely. I I feel like this like being part of this community though has literally done everything for me like mm. I now don't feel so much guilt about like not having a proper job or like not kind of like I, I feel like living this way and like living in permanent chronic pain and like all these other symptoms like that is enough of a job like that is mm. that is like the biggest job and you don't get a break and you don't get paid and it's like pretty shit yeah. <laughs> you just laugh for it um yeah yeah um, so yeah, so we've worked. So I only sort of just started kind of doing work, kind of actual work stuff, and like getting. Mm. And I remember like the first bit of money that I got from this job. I remember feeling like, like I never thought that I'd ever earn my own money. Like yeah. I mean, I earned a bit when I was like younger, and I like, did like bar jobs and like catering jobs. Do you know what I mean? But mm. I didn't. Like I never thought that I'd actually be able to make money. And yeah, because you've been bedridden for a long time. Yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, it's not like I don't want to put too much value on that because, like, it probably that might be the only job I ever do. Mm. And like, it's completely acceptable not even to do any jobs. Like, you know, you're doing the best that you can. But that feeling was like such a nice feeling. So I just I, I'd come to terms with the fact that, that probably would never happen for me. Like mm. that basic kind of earning like a bit of money like but in a way it's happened because you've created a community for yourself and people are responding to your work yeah yeah so the chronic illness has while it's something that we struggle with in terms of self-identity it's also something that can lead us to what we're supposed to be doing in a sense yeah Mm. so you mentioned earlier as well you know that trope of the hysterical woman and not being believed which you definitely cover in your work. Um, you know, mm-hmm. people may know you for these portraits of people's, it's just a f- portrait of someone's face who's living with chronic illness and it'll say, believe, name of person. Um, and, you know, I'm wondering if you have any particular recollections about moments when you were forced to validate for someone else what was going on with you, you know, that you had to justify the fact that you were sick and someone just did couldn't grasp it or didn't understand it I think I've had that a lot with friends um mm. when I was at something really awful well, I mean to me it was awful <laughs> like mm. happened when I was first unwell and like I remember I couldn't go back to uni and I had to watch all my friends going back to uni and like and then I found out that people at uni were saying like oh like she's not really ill or like all this stuff and I remember just finding that like I was like, why would anyone, or like, or, or like family were thinking like, oh, is this actually like legit? Or like my other friends, like, and I was like, attention seeking my life at uni. Like, why would I just Mm. not want to be at uni? Why would I just want to be in bed the whole time? Like really upset and crying. Like no one wants that. Do you know what I mean? No one's like, that is not a choice. Like that's not kind of like something that I decided, like I wanted my life to be like, why? I just don't understand why people, why it's so hard to believe like sick people because you just, no one wants to be sick. Like, I mean, or maybe like a, like a couple of people do, but that shouldn't, you know, then... Like, it's like a couple of bad apples ruining the whole bunch. It's not... Yeah, exactly, exactly. Mm. Uh, and then there's been times with doctors. I remember, like, 
even quite recently I saw the do- adopter. I can't remember what it was actually for. I don't even know if it was even actually no, it definitely was for the like illness related, like chronic illness related stuff. But I was telling him that I was like really struggling because normally my pain had been really like above my my hips. So for ages I was just it was just headaches and neck pain. Like it was awful pain, but it was just there and then it gradually started spreading like further down my body. But I was still really grateful that like my legs were okay. And I felt like hmm. like I could still walk quite easily. And then about a year and a half ago, that started to change. And mm-hmm. then I went to the doctor and I was trying to explain to him that like my legs were so painful and I was really struggling to walk. And like I hadn't had that before. And it was like worrying me because, you know, when you, we all know that when you start to get a symptom, it's pretty much like not going to go away. Um, yeah. And the doctor was like, oh, but you managed to walk in here. And I was just like, are you joking? Like, obviously I can walk, but, like, it's causing me, like, a lot of pain. And I literally just got, like, just, I was literally walked from the waiting room into your office. And, like, that's... So, it's so presumptuous and so rude. And that's the kind of flippant comment that can really shatter people's worlds. Oh, it completely did shatter my world. I I left that appointment and I was, like, hysterically crying. And, like... And then you become the hysterical woman they think you are. It's, you know. Yeah, no, because I started to start crying in the appointment as well. Sure. I mean, I would have too. He was just triggering me so much. And he, I remember he was asking me, like, so patronizingly, he said to me, is there anything in the world that makes you happy? And I was like, it was just so what? weird. And I was just like, what? And, I, and the thing is, what was making me even more annoyed in that appointment, because I couldn't actually think of one thing at the time that actually was making me happy. Yeah. And I was yeah. like, And, like, I just hated they'd ask me that with these weird eyes, like, pitying eyes. And I was just like, like, oh, and, like, uh, and that's the other thing is like for so many of us living with chronic illness, we don't want to be pitied. We just want to be understood. There's a very big difference, isn't there? You don't want pity and you don't want praise. Like you just want to be like respected as like a human and like your lived experience to be respected and like your word to be respected. Like you mm-hmm. you don't want anything else. You're not asking for like, you just want your, yeah, yeah, experiences to be and your abilities to be respected. Yeah. Well, because you're still seeking validation yourself and we need it from outside sources to, to understand the bigger perspective of what's happening to us. And the fact that so much of what's happening in terms of prejudice in the system is systemic, you know, I, I mean, we, we've also talked about the fact that like, you know, as a woman in a lot of these appointments, you might've been treated differently. And I'm wondering, you know, whether you could also see the circumstances being different for you in your history, if you'd presented differently than you are, perhaps if you'd been a woman of color or if you'd been trans or, you know, like if you weren't a white woman, obviously we know bring a cis white man with you to an appointment if you want to be taken seriously. But I mean, this is something that you really do talk about in your work. I mean, it's enough to, to create a portrait of someone to remind people, um, to believe people's stories. I think it was Invalid Art recently. Do you, I don't know if you follow her. And she put that image up about... Who was her. it? Sorry. Invalid Art. Oh, yeah. Invalid yeah. Art. Yeah. She put that image up, which was like, you know, how we all think that it's just white, rich women. With you and I were both like, oh, okay. Everyone, we need to remind you that this is true. <laughs> it's so true. And like, I think about it all the time. I'm like, am I doing enough to kind of like um share other people's voices and amplify other people's voices and not mm. like not just talk about my like my own experiences because really like they are quite common experiences and they're nothing kind of out of the ordinary of what you hear about quite often do you know what I mean yeah um, and I don't know I don't know because I I don't know obviously I've never been like I am I only know from my experiences like I'm 
of but I just I know that from what I've read it is definitely harder if you are a black woman or if you are trans well, I did speak to someone recently though who did say that he had found after his transition that actually um he was taken more seriously yeah I was gonna say was he taken more seriously yeah yeah, yeah. Which I, I didn't actually think that, that would be the case but I find it so interesting because like you know I we really don't know like you have to talk to people, different people to find out and it also uh, depends how you present like you know someone's going to look at you if they think that you're a cis white man then they're going to believe you more anyway yeah mm. uh, that's and so interesting it's really interesting as well like how different cultures go through such a different their experiences with their family and things when they turn ill like Mm, yeah for like Asian cultures like they like it's very hard for that for their family to kind of I don't know if I'm explaining this very well actually but no I'm with you so far that like there's there's different perceptions of familial relationships and of our duty to one another within yeah yeah, exactly well do you explain it so much better than me (laughs) (laughs) yeah but that's my job (laughs) yeah that's true but um, (laughs) Yeah, but that's a, that's a very well-made point, I think, you know, that we have to understand that it's not just within this, you know, Western developed world that these things are happening, that it's it's everywhere, that like, you know, these issues, yes, are systemic, but also they're systemic in totally different ways, depending on where you are yeah. as well. And there was this um, Indian woman I was talking to recently, and she was saying how um, when she, then she's kind of divorced her family almost, and now she doesn't have anyone who she can carry on her cultural traditions with and wow. like speak about that sort of stuff to. And I think you kind of forget about that. Like it's not. And chronic illness has made that happen in her life. Yeah, exactly. Because she felt like she couldn't be around that anymore. Like she, she wasn't being mm-hmm. taken seriously. And like, obviously it was very, very difficult for her. But I think you, you forget that when you like with certain people, it's not easy to just not, not like it's easy for anyone to just like leave their families and like, you know, after they don't support them. But I think it just has a massive difference depending on where you're from as well and your identity and kind of, it's not, it's not as simple as like, oh, well, don't talk to that person if they're not supporting you. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. Which is a privilege that I think, you know, cis white people have more of that privilege of being able to be like, well, I don't need to talk to that person, you know, but. I mean, if I didn't talk to, obviously if I didn't talk to my family, I'd be really upset because they're my family and everything. But there's no kind of, like, ways of life that I would would feel like I wouldn't be able to share with anyone. Do you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah, because you live in your own culture. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, do you see yourself as an advocate in that you're lifting up the voices of people who have been marginalized even more so than you? Um, like, I see the irony that I'm a white woman, a cis white woman asking a cis white woman this question, you know, like, but... I mean, I would make the argument that you are absolutely an advocate and one who is reminding white women in particular of our implications in in this discussion and and the fact that like there are people who are dealing with even more layers of invisibility or lack of understanding. How do you see yourself in this discussion? I feel like I don't even want to say that I am because I feel like I'm not even like deserving of any kind of praise. Mm. Uh, doing something that I would see as, like, a basic kind of... That's a necessity. Yeah, exactly. And, like, I feel like what's the point in, like, like, if we're just going to be lifting up some of some people who are sick or, like, some people's experience of being sick, then, like, it's just, that's just, like, fucked up. <laughs> like, that's just wrong. Like, yeah, it needs to be everyone. Um, but I do feel like maybe with the Believe Us series, like, I am giving 
people, not necessarily anyone in particular, but kind of people who either don't have the pla- the privilege of having like a big, bigger platform. I mean, mine's not huge, but like I have got like a decent amount of people who probably would see or read someone's story. And I feel like with, I know for me anyways, like there's a big difference between posting your own story and someone being like, I think your story is important. Like, can I share it? Do you know what I mean? Oh, I, I know exactly. Cause I, I'm yeah. the one who I'm like you, we also have created platforms for other people. Yeah, exactly. And I feel like that's something that I really like being able to like share someone's story on my page because I feel like it's me being like your story matters. Like it providing validation that you didn't get. Yeah, for exactly, other people. Exactly. Yeah. Completely that. And like, I think we're always made to feel like our stories don't matter. Like, especially as sick people, like it's kind of like, we're always told like gaslit and like mistreated by everyone around us really. And like, no one is giving us the kind of respect and empathy that we rightfully deserve. And I feel like when someone is, when someone's like, you know, yeah, your story's important. And like, I want to draw you and I want to put time into like, um, that like I, yeah, I want to, <laughs> yeah, you want to, you want to, you want to give them a spotlight because yeah, their story yeah. is important. And also I feel like it's like the added thing of like, it's not just sharing their story or it's like actually taking quite a lot of time and like my energy, like that to draw them as well. And I feel like Mm. it shows that they are really important. And like, I wish I could draw everyone. Do you know what I mean? Obviously I (laughs) I wish I could literally obviously draw everybody and like share everyone's story, but. Well, you might get there eventually. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But and also in, in sharing others' stories, you have created a community around yourself rather than going to the community on social media that like didn't quite feel right to you. You've brought a community to yourself through the stories of others and through creating this platform. I mean, I imagine that's probably helped you find validation personally as well in a lot of ways. Yeah. Well, I feel like I, like the person who really kind of actually got me more of like my initial friends on Instagram was um, Claudia, who runs Ableteen, and she sort of suggested some people that I follow. And she was like, because I was, I remember talking to her, and I was, I was a bit like, you know, I don't know kind of who who to follow. Like some things I find like really intense, like some stuff I don't necessarily agree with, and like because obviously we don't, we're all our individual, like we're all individual people. Like we're not just all the same, and like we're all kind of we all like the same stuff, and we all like agree with the same kind of like things, uh, and. Mm. So she gave me like a list of like great people to follow. And like that then I felt like that then started like me like connecting with people and like forming proper friendships and like then finding yeah. like, my own friends and yeah, my own friends, they are my own friends, but then finding people that like they, I hadn't seen before and mm. them and like giving me the confidence to chat to people online. But isn't it interesting too, that like if, if someone like Claudia, you know, if, if we become mentors then like she was to you, if, if anyone comes to us and says, who should we follow? It's as much our duty to give a proper representation of what disability looks like. Right. So if someone's coming to us and saying, who should I follow? You know, it can't just be cis white women. It can't just be cis white men. Like it has to, it has to really cover the gamut of like self-identity within yeah. disability as well. You don't learn anything either. Do you know what I mean? You're literally yeah. just basically seeing people who are living the same life as you. And like obviously. Yeah. It's an echo chamber. In a way. Yeah, completely. But it's like, you're not actually like, I feel like I've learned so much this year. Like 
just about disability justice in general and like I mean just just and racism and like I just, I've just learned so much that like honestly I I had never kind of well maybe I just I didn't even really try and learn about do you know what I mean I feel mm-hmm. like I was definitely living in a bit of a bubble before I got sick and then when you actually do start dealing with things like sexism and like discrimination like in you then start to kind of be like fuck like this I didn't realize that this really existed like I had heard about it but I didn't really know yeah. know much about it and then I think you then start I don't know I wish it wasn't that way though I wish I had started being an activist or started kind of talking about issues or like raising people's voices or just but it's hard to do that it's I think it's it's hard to start on that journey when you're still trying to figure out what you've got going on you know like you had to figure yeah, your shit yeah, out I a little bit first yeah like it, at a certain point it's like at what point do you step outside your experience into someone else's? And I think it's once you've figured out where your experience sits and, and how to sort through your own experience, right? Like you, you can't pour for an empty cup. So you have to sort of know what you're dealing with in order to then look at these other stories and gain a better perspective on others and your own. Yeah. Yeah. Mm, Absolutely. So we know that you live in the UK, that you, you know, have access to free healthcare, but that you've also gone to private doctors. Do you see, like, what are the ways in which the healthcare system that you live within is working for patients? And in what ways is it falling short or requiring improvement? Um, it's a big, big question, I know. Yeah, that's a question, oh my God. Yeah, it's like, that's a whole separate interview. <laughs> I feel like it works. I don't really feel like it works for people with sort of illnesses that I have, like at all really. But I definitely think that obviously we're so lucky that we have the NHS and I feel like it works if you're in a life and death situation. Like Absolutely. obviously not big time, but it's obviously a massive benefit if you, you know, yeah. Mm. But I, I just think for us and je- for like people who have long-term illnesses that are like very underfunded and just generally not really heard about, I feel like, it doesn't really work for us like at all. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And how is it working in that it does provide healthcare to people, very mm. basic healthcare or acute healthcare? Yeah. I think acute healthcare. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think that's yeah. certainly very true. And have you ever experienced any other healthcare systems or is it just the NHS that you've worked around? Um, what do you mean by other healthcare systems? Like, have you lived elsewhere and, and oh, used no, healthcare no, no. anywhere else? In the UK, yeah. Yeah. And, yeah, yeah just in the UK. Um, yeah. And so when, then what was the other part of that question? Oh, it was, you answered it. You know, in what way is the healthcare system working for patients and in what way is it falling short? That's, yeah. you answered it. <laughs> <laughs> so we're sort of coming to the end of everything. And, and I wrap up my interviews with a couple of top three lists. So this is the fun bit. And I'm wondering what, if, if the rest hasn't been fun. <laughs> so I'm wondering what your top three tips are for someone who maybe thinks that like, oh, my health is, this is a little funky, you know, or maybe they've been diagnosed with something nebulous or, you know, have been diagnosed with something that doesn't feel right or diagnosed and don't know how to go about treatment. What would you suggest for people who are living that spoony life so that they can manage their way through? Top three. I think pushing for answers, even when you're told there aren't any, is important. Yes. Um, But then I also think that acceptance is massively important as well. And I think Mm. that 
that is something that, I mean, it takes a really long, a long time, I think, for a lot of people. I mean, it have, definitely for me, it's taken like about six years of accepting this is actually my life and this is the situation. And that's very hard and you're going to feel like a lot of things you're going to grieve. You're going to just generally be absolutely devastated. But if you can, when you find acceptance, you realize it actually is not as bad as you thought it was. And actually, yeah. like, I do have so much joy in my life. Do you know what I mean? There's so much happiness and I'm not just miserable all the time. Like, So you can yeah. remind yourself when that doctor asks you next time, is there anything in your life that makes you yeah, happy? No, there is. At that point, actually, well, that's really- what? Yeah. <laughs> definitely is. I think I've recently just become a lot more, um, um, what's the word? Like involved in your joy, more grateful? Yeah, but yeah, more grateful for, for things. I think it's obviously very hard to be grateful when you're just not grateful for your life in general. Like, yeah, you know, and when it feels like your body has betrayed you. is living like these amazing lives, but yeah, I am so grateful. But that's I, another way that social media doesn't help is that other people are like, "Look, I'm on a boat in Greece," and it's like, "Fuck off." But now I just don't. Now I don't even look at my personal social media anymore. Really, like I literally hardly ever look at it. Like I'm always just, if I'm on social media, mm. I'm just like on my other one, or I just will yeah. not be on social media. I think obviously. Um, now I'm going off topic. <laughs> I was no, no, it's interesting. No, I think, well, I think social media is so vital for like a lot of people. And I think that it's given like a bad reputation, you know, mm. as like providing us with just not feeling like we're doing enough or like that we're good we're enough. not being realistic. Yeah. But then I now have friends that I can talk to in the day that I can't talk to because all my other friends are at work or like, I have people who actually are understanding what, what I'm actually dealing with or going through. But I still feel at the same time, like, I still need breaks. Like, I think when you see people, like, when you see your real life experience, like, or similar to lived, like, by someone else, you just, it's, it's very difficult to, like, separate your your life from your illness. Do you know what I mean? And obviously, I, I'm happy being, like, you know, now I, now I identify as disabled, now I identify as, like, I'm actually a proud, sick person. Like, I'm like, yes, I'm sick. Mm. But, like... I feel like at the same time, I still don't want to just only be talking about illness and disability or only be sure. like my illness and my disability. Like, cause the conversation's so much more than that. Yeah, yeah. I think you really do address that in your work. Oh, thanks. Yeah, of course. Okay. So wait, we've done ta- yeah. We've done two tips. You said push for answers. Acceptance. Acceptance. What's number three? Um, Oh God! Uh, <laughs> is it maybe go to social media and like use it to your advantage? Yeah, but then I don't know because I feel like that's just so up to the person. Like, yeah, I don't want to force it on anyone because it's actually quite intense. And like, I definitely at times would not have been ready for that. Do you know what I mean? I wouldn't mm. be ready to see anyone being being unwell or like dealing with things because I think it's comforting in the way that it validates you, but it's also just it's just a lot. Like, it's just a lot knowing that there's all these people being ignored. Like you know, dealing with all this stuff. Absolutely, so that would be my other tip. I'm, my other tip. Maybe believe people. I think it would be. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think it would actually be finding something that, like, brings you joy and not, um, not kind of letting anyone make you feel shit about that. Like whether it's just like watching reality TV, which was definitely mine for a while. Like I've honestly watched absolutely every bit of reality TV because it would just take me away from like, I, I could almost watch people living like, I would, I would be like, oh yeah, just living their lives. And like, I felt like I was almost living it too. Like I was like just part of this reality TV like thing and my world wasn't actually happening and like I wasn't actually living this way. And that it was, was a proper like, escape. 
it was yeah escapism like oh my god anything that helps you like don't feel bad about it like tv is definitely my escapism and no one can honestly no one can make me feel bad about how much tv i watched i don't care yeah good on you <laughs> I'm, honestly, I'm over it i felt quite bad for a while like what have you done today I'm like uh just watched um 20 episodes of uh the oc or like <laughs> something really <super laughs> now, like um but yeah i don't i just don't even try and defend it anymore i'm like yeah it makes me happy like whatever yeah so, yeah that that's a nice. that's a great one and being unapologetic too I suppose is on that yeah. list as well about what yeah. makes you happy what about top three things I mean this is sort of piggybacking off of that top three things that give you unbridled joy that you're completely unwilling to compromise on like this could be like guilty pleasures or secret indulgences but it could also be comfort activities like you know watching tv anything that makes you super super happy that you absolutely won't compromise on um certain like foods and like drinks so like coffee and chocolate like even though I've been told by people and I have given up on point but even though I might be told by people oh maybe you shouldn't eat that much chocolate or like blah blah I'm like I should just go away like I don't care like that minute while like that time when I went to the chocolate bar like I had so much chocolate at one point I'd have like a whole big bar a day like and it'd be my time of just like whilst I was eating that chocolate bar I just felt good and like I don't really care like that's fine yep. It might yeah, not be chocolate like, seems to have that effect on people. <laughs> yeah, that would be mine. Yeah, that would be mine. Um, oh, I don't know. Uh, like maybe think, your art and TV, you know? Yeah, art. Yeah, my art maybe. But I think at the moment I am trying to do more of like actually go back into this drawing again because I like drawing. Do you know what I mean? I think mm. because obviously I don't have that much energy and it, it does really hurt my wrist because it's all like hand, yeah. like hand, it's not digital. It's like hand do you on. use supports as well when you're doing the drawings? Oh, like what, wrist like, supports um, and things? Yeah, I have wrist supports and stuff, but just mm. generally like my, and my, you know, you, like, you can't help but to lean over. Yeah, so, of like, course. Drawing and like all of those things have such an effect. And like, I think I, w- I would draw and it would only be for something and then mm. I would stop. Instead, I didn't draw for, like, myself at all. It wasn't, like, an enjoyable thing almost. It was just because I had to get this done because, like, I was either doing, like, a believe me thing where I was, like, I had a good idea and I felt like I had to do it. But, like, now I'm just also drawing because, actually, I just like drawing. And I think... Gives you joy. Yeah. And then this little baby. Come here, little. Oh, show us. Oh, hello. There is a very cute chihuahua on my screen right now. Hello. Have you been there the whole time? He has. And he literally just like, he just, he's so well behaved. Like he will go anywhere and like do anything. This is my baby. Oh, what's his name? Diddy. Diddy. I love that. He's he's very mellow. And um, and then I try and take Diddy out like occasionally to like the park or something. Which gets you out too. Yeah, exactly. It gets me out. We have an outside bit there. So if I'm not feeling well, then I can just like, you can just go out there. And then my mm. boyfriend will always walk him like a longish walk in the morning and in the evening. So like, he still, he obviously gets walked. I'm not like abusing yeah. him. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, you're not the first person to mention that like having a pet when you're chronically ill can be really positive. Like, I think there's nothing like a dog, especially first thing in the morning when you're feeling a bit shit, you know, like a dog who's like best day ever. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. and he's just like, I remember when, because he, I don't live in, like my family, I don't live in London or in England. Mm. And um, I remember. You don't live like, in England? Well, I live in England, but I don't really, I live in Jersey, which is like a very small uh. island, like very, very close to England. It's still part yes. of like Great Britain, but it's not part of the UK. Um, yeah. So it's like, a, it's a flight, it's a flight away or a boat away. And um, 
so Diddy had to leave. My mum came and took Diddy over when she was over in London in like November, and I didn't get him back in in London again until January. And those two oh. months, I remember just being like, I felt like I was so anxious. Like I was so so anxious. Like I felt, especially when it started to get dark because it gets dark earlier. I just remember feeling like, oh my god, the world's going to implode, and my 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 brain would start to go to really bad places. And like when Diddy's here, like I feel like. Like it just nothing like nothing that bad can really happen. Like is mm. it in my head? Do you know what I mean? Like I can't get to like a really bad place mentally almost because I feel like he almost just brings me back from from that place. Yeah. Like I get like really He's your touchstone. Like, really bad, like really bad low times. Mm. Um, yeah. Oh, that's really lovely. Well, Diddy, thanks for joining us. <laughs> and Mimi. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. Now, can you tell everyone where they can find you and your work? Yes. Um my Instagram account is at can't, then wait, it's can't, then underscore go, go out, I'm sick. No, no, it's no, it's the other way around, I think. Yeah. Out, then underscore, then it's I'm sick. Yeah. yeah. At can't go out, underscore, I'm sick. <laughs> yeah. And that's basically where to find me, really. Mm. Yeah, that's awesome. And is there anything else that you want to share with people tuning into this episode? Um, unpack a little more white privilege maybe <laughs> no, I would actually say that I would say that and I also think just make sure that you are diversifying your feed like mm. just I mean I, you can I, you can message me and I'll tell you to ask you or just have a look at who I'm following or do you know what I mean you could it's, it's not like a massive thing but then you just you just learn so much more and you're kind of just you're actually like getting out of your like privileged bubble do you know what I mean you're actually just like involving yourself in really important issues and then you can then find out how you can then help these people do you know what I mean absolutely yeah well Mimi it's been such a pleasure chatting with you thank you so much for being on the show and we can't wait to continue your journey and continue following your art oh thank you of course my pleasure that's it folks thanks for listening As always, please check us out online at uninvisiblepod.com and all over the social media world at uninvisiblepod. We love your feedback and suggestions, so please drop us a line via the website if you have questions, ideas for topics to cover in future episodes, or just want to say hello. We're all about relationships and collaboration here, so credit where credit is due. Music for this episode is by Sean Hart, who can be found at seanhart.com. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts.